Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. This is a space where we talk about what it means to awaken hope and empower change. Listen, for over a decade, Em and I have been fostering relationships with men and women who've been impacted by the commercial sex industry. And it's through those relationships that Jesus Said Love was born. We figured it was time to talk about what this ministry has taught us and is still teaching us along the way. I promise it's going to be a place of conversation and story. And we hope you learn something new. Maybe you see something in a new way. Fun fact, you're going to hear music because Brett and I are musicians. Yep. We can't just talk. Nope. we got to sing and play too. We do. Here's the deal, guys. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, that you'll tap into your own story and that you'll be encouraged to live and love well like Jesus. All right. Emily. Hi, Brett. It's happening. Well, we're back from a little mini spring break trip to Arkansas. Yes. So that was fun to get to see some friends and visit some colleges for our oldest. It was. And we took our dog, which um, for you know a seven-hour trip was interesting. But he did well. Yeah. And, and he also slept today till 9.20. He did. He normally gets up at 6.30 to eat. I mean, that is some exhaustion. <laughs> okay. Can we get the dog... I mean, can we get the elephant out of the room? I'm going to cough yes. at different points throughout this thing. And don't worry to our listeners, it is not coronavirus. Which, even if it was, they can't catch it you over the airwaves. You can't get it. So we're they're, okay. they're saying it's hanging out in the air, but you all cannot catch it <laughs> no. from this podcast, I promise. It's not teleportation. I <laughs> but I also want to say this. I need people to quit buying all the damn toilet paper, okay? Because oh, there's like no toilet paper. It You're is. freaking out. And if you if you bought a lot of toilet paper and you love Jesus, you need to be sharing <laughs> that toilet paper, not sharing it. I if, mean, not... Char upcharging for we people. We will have another conversation about this, but my whole thing is, first of all, please don't overstock like crazy, but if you are going to do that, you better be willing to share with the least of these because the people who are impacted are the ones who don't have the means to buy up a month's worth of supplies and groceries. I just, it's, it's very egocentric to... To, to do that. That's and good. so, yeah. So That's we, good. We may have to do a whole podcast around this Corona thing. It, it really is mm, indicting in some ways on where we're at as a, as a culture in America. So more to come on that. Oh, show. Tell us about today. <laughs> you know? Okay. But today, what we're really excited about is um, we have a guest on the show who I've followed over the years who has a really unique voice um, as a woman, as a professor, um, as a black feminist, as a um, architect, and Christian ethicist. Which so how to does have, hold on? How does that go together? We're going to find out. We're going to we? find out because her voice as um, someone who who knows architectural design, who has studied theology and religion and Christian ethics, who is a black feminist. These are worlds that are colliding in a beautiful way. And her new book that's coming out that we'll talk about is called Building Justice. And so we're literally going to just inquire about what it means to build out justice in the world. So yay, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It is um, an honor for me to be a part of your work in whatever way it is, even if that's a small part. But it's really exciting for me to be a part of this podcast. So thank you so much. We are so excited. So tell us about um, your background. How did you get into studying? Did architecture come first or did theology, religion, Christian ethics? What 
What happened there? I think architecture came first. Ever since I was a child, I thought that I would do something in the arts. I Mm. thought that I would be a creative adult. Uh, And so when I was in high school, I started studying architectural drawing. I don't think we do this the same way anymore, but like I was just talking to someone the other day about how when I was in school, we had drafting tables and we did all that stuff. And because I went back to, I went to high school in the 1990s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So last century. (laughs) Um, There with you. (laughs) So it was, um, that was my first entryway. I wanted to be artistic, but Mm -hmm. I um, wanted to make a living. Uh, So I, I was afraid to be a real artist. I became the artist of the professional world, Mm. the starving artist of the professional world, which is architects. Um, (laughs) So it's not what it looks like on TV. (laughs) They don't all live in super fancy houses. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went to architecture school. I uh, went to Florida A&M University, go Rattlers. I got my master of architecture degree there, and I thought I would um, teach architecture at Mm. some point. Um, to be a licensed architect, you have to uh, work work for several years. And so I started working. I was working in the Washington, D.C. area, mm. which is where I'm from. And uh, as I was pursuing that career, uh, getting my footing there, uh, I had in mind that I would go back to school. I thought it would be for cultural studies. Mm. Uh, and my hope was to be a practicing architect and then teach at a university or college uh, what happened is that I ended up going back to school for theology. And so that was uh, just because I heard uh, a preacher who was the president of my uh, summer, who was the president of the seminary I went to, uh, he was preaching at my church, uh, talking about how you could go to school part time and still do your work full time. Architects mm. have very long hours. Mm. And so that was important to me to have the kind of flexibility to study theology part-time. I started studying theology, thinking it was just about service in my church, Mm -hmm. that I was um, learning what I needed to to teach the college-age class at my local church. Um, I'm a lifelong learner. I didn't like... Let me just stop there, because (laughs) who do you know goes to seminary to make sure that what they're teaching in the college church... Yeah, I was thinking the other day I'm going to teach in the college... Section at Sunday school. I'm going to go get a seminary degree. Well, you know, I was teaching this course, I mean, this class for about a year. I had a co teacher and we, it was fine. I enjoyed it, but I felt like I didn't know anything more than what the book, the Mm. leader's book, was telling me. Mm. And I, I'm just the kind of learner who wants to know more about stuff. You want the deep dive. Yeah, especially if I'm teaching it, right? Mm -hmm. I want to be able to answer questions that go beyond just what has been provided for me and get into that foundational knowledge. So I thought I'd do a certificate in biblical study or Mm -hmm. certificate in theology, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It would have been, I think, six courses or Mm -hmm. something like that. It would take maybe a year, um, you know, two courses a semester, so maybe a year and a half. And when I went in to interview, they were like, oh, yeah, you know, you can start this fall. And everything was set up, and I started, and I went into my first theology class. I remember my first semester, I took Intro to Theological Studies and Old Testament. Mm. And I went into the theology class, the Theological Studies class. And I remember I felt at home. Mm. I was like, oh, this is the method I've been looking for. You know, mm. I, I had wanted to go back to school, like I said, 
pursue a degree in cultural studies, maybe mm-hmm. um, something where I could ask these questions about architecture, um, which are questions about why we build in a certain way, mm-hmm. what are we designing for? Mm-hmm. And instead of asking those from a secular perspective, mm. I, I was introduced to theology and the idea that we can ask questions about how we live from a faith perspective, mm. and that that faith perspective doesn't need to be based in fear or in um, a kind of separation, mm. but that the faith perspective can give us just a different lens um, in mm. what I would say today, a lens guided by the Spirit in mm-hmm. order to understand um, why we do things as Christians in Mm. particular ways. This is so fascinating to me because one of the questions that just rose up in me was, did you know, as you, you mentioned just always being creative, always being drawn to the arts, even as a child. Yeah. So I think as a creative, there's already already a natural bend to look at culture, look at things a yes. little bit outside the box. Your your questions are not always linear. Right. Your questions are just they're coming from all the angles, right? As a creative. But then you're learning this technical skill of of to be an architect. Right. Are you as you're gaining these skills as an architect, are you already asking these theological questions? Are you already, as you're gaining this um, degree in architecture, are you already kind of seeing some, are you disillusioned by what you're looking no, at? No, I was, you... I was excited. So okay. part of what architecture is, is um, a kind of social art, right? Mm. You're designing for people, right? Mm. And so you have to understand people, but you're also... Um, we have an area of study called architectural theory where you're investigating these theoretical concepts of why we design and what we do and and why we're doing it. Uh, And architectural history is all about the different ways that people have designed for their particular culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember architecture school isn't quite what people think it is in in terms of the the technical stuff. There's a lot of that. I mean, and and those are hard classes (laughs) uh, and we all struggle with them. But the Design is also a really hard class, mm. and you take so many ses- semesters of design. You're taking design, design, at least in my program, you took it every semester for uh, at least five years, five or six years, right, uh, f- or four years if you're just getting the four-year degree. And so you're, every semester you're learning how to create. And it's not, when you're learning design in architecture school, it's not so much about the technical aspects, although, of course, as you progress through the program, you learn that. But it's about how to say through building materials or through spaces, how to say something, Mm. right? So I remember my first year in architecture school, uh, I I mentioned to you, I'd taken these drafting courses. So Mm -hmm. I felt like I had a certain amount of knowledge (laughs) and, and skill and expertise. And I go in, you know, this is probably the first week. And um, of, of my first year. And our professor has us take black pieces of paper and rip them up mm-hmm. into little, you know, pieces of paper uh, and arrange them on a white sheet of paper um, to say different things. So mm-hmm. um, to like emphasize movement, mm-hmm. right? Well, how do you take pieces of paper mm-hmm. to indicate movement, right? Mm-hmm. Or how do you emphasize joy? Mm-hmm. Or how do you represent Um, something that's very static and Mm -hmm. unmoving. Mm. And so 
early on in architecture school, you're learning that your buildings are expressing something, mm. right? That it's not just about function. Uh, even if it is about function, it's not about um, just utility, right? That function is about what people are trying to do. And so you have to understand who those people are and what it is they really want in order to design a space well. Um, are there things that you picked up on because as you're learning that really quality architecture is about knowing the people, right? It's about building with people in mind. Right. So as you take us on just a, a quick tour, historical tour, if you will, if you will, on what our architecture in American history has revealed. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know if I can do sort of the grand tour. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I should be able to. I don't know if I can. Um, But I will say there are a couple of things that you see emphasized um, over and over again. So uh, right now when I I work on architecture and religion or architecture and theology, uh, most people assume I'm looking at churches, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And for the most part, I don't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't do church design or church buildings. um, And there are many fine people who do analysis Mm -hmm. of that, and and I appreciate their work and and use it. But I think if you look at American religious architecture, you can certainly see a move from... um, a kind of imminence that is a focus on, or sorry, a kind of transcendence, mm-hmm. right? The the idea that God is above and beyond, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. To more of an imminent God. Mm. And I think that tension has always been there in the American cultural history where you had um, Puritans and pilgrims and mm-hmm. uh, people who were escaping a kind of church structure that emphasized transcendence mm-hmm. and were really looking to see God in their everyday practices and mm-hmm. everyday lives, um, getting away from a kind of representational um, architecture, mm-hmm. right, where there, there are lots of images of God mm-hmm. and um, lots of, of pictures to sort of the plain meeting houses that mm-hmm. you see in early America in mm-hmm. uh, the Congregationalist communities or the pilgrims mm-hmm. um, and, in, um, and in some other uh, denominations that became pretty prevalent in the mm-hmm. U.S. So you have this tension in many denominations and churches even today you still have very simple buildings that don't have a lot of uh, representational artwork, mm. right? So, right. the church I'm at right now, I, you know, it's it's Lent, so we have some images of uh, stations of the cross around the the um, sanctuary and images of Jesus in that. But for the most part, there's just a simple cross at mm. the front of the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Um, and some churches, as you know, don't even have crosses in them, right? Yeah. There's this kind of move away from that overt representational mm-hmm. element. So that's part of the religious architecture history, this tension of wanting to represent the transcendent. And you have these beautiful buildings in mm. uh, the sort of neo-Gothic mm-hmm. tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're too new as a country to yeah, have like real Gothic right. stuff, right? That's so true. But you have the stuff that is uh, the architecture that's recalling that tradition. And and it's saying God is fitting of our most beautiful work. Right. right? And when you and go to New York or Manhattan absolutely. or um, right. Chicago right. and do those architectural right. tours, right. it's 
It's astounding. Right. And so it's saying, you know, this is worth all our money and our beauty and God is mm-hmm. beauty. Glory. Yeah, it's, glory. It's the glory. Right. Uh-huh. And it's it's designed to take you to this experience that is outside of yourself, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and there's there's a place for that, yeah. right? And you have that tension with the the emphasis on God is in the everyday and yeah. in the humble and right. the simple simple surroundings. So uh-huh. like um, you can think of like Shaker style sure. furniture and yes. architecture. I mean, the Shakers were a religious movement that yes. was emphasizing simplicity and direct access to God, an American movement, mm. right? And so you see all you see those tensions playing out in architecture as it is in the American religious history. Mm. What do we need to think of even in terms of, as we think of our marginalized groups um, and building spaces for minorities, building spaces for women. Um, Historically, our spaces that have been funded, Mm -hmm. (laughs) well or well-funded, they're built for who? Right, right. I mean... I mean, that's part of the the story, not just of American architecture, but uh, 20th century architecture okay. is this um, this design for utopian societies. Mm. And you have these building projects um, that are um, often subsidized housing or other types of community projects, um, community-oriented projects or projects for specific communities that end up being a kind of horrific Mm. architecture that we think of as very brutalist or Mm. very harsh, um, you know, these high-rise buildings Mm -hmm. that end up being demolished and, you know, to to great applause and fanfare, Mm. right, that, um, you know, they were terrible places to live. Right. Um, And and that becomes part of what um, I, I think one of the fundamental flaws in the way we've done design for marginalized marginalized communities in the past is precisely in that preposition for, right? Mm. That it's designing for a particular group rather than designing with them. That's good. Yeah. And so part of it, part of my work is addressing this question of um, who gets to design Mm. and who is responsible for design. Mm. And I encourage everybody to be responsible Mm. for design of their own spaces. And we do this in all kinds of everyday ways. I mean, you know, those of us who uh, have cubicles or office spaces, you know, we make them our own, right? Yeah. Um, You know, someone decorates their bedroom to reflect their, their Mm -hmm. style or their interests. You know, you can think of the teenager putting posters on the wall, right? It's a way of making something yours and claiming it and representing your aesthetic through that. And I would say that that's not a a minimal thing, right? Right. That that's a really important part of claiming your own agency in your own space in the world, Mm -hmm. your own desire to exist and claim it and to be something and be someone important, right? That you, um, that you design your physical spaces, the Mm -hmm. spaces that you have some control over Mm -hmm. or access over. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of what there's a whole movement um, of participatory design mm. or socially responsible design, and those I aren't like exactly the same thing. Okay, but, what's the di- well break right. down the difference? So, participatory design is about designing with with people, right? So, with the people that are involved in their 
their spaces, right? So, uh-huh. of course, there's a kind of knowledge and expertise and skill that architects have, right? There's a training that architects have. We go to school for a really long time. We have right. this, uh, this mentorship experience where we're working in the field. We have licensing exams. Um, all of that is designed to protect the health, sa- safety, and welfare of the general public. And that's an important thing. But each step of that process weeds out, Mm. (laughs) I shouldn't say weeds out, but begins to narrow who actually survives through that process. Mm. So I'm, I'm a registered architect. Mm -hmm. I'm a black woman. Mm -hmm. When I was studying for my exams, it was only 0.2% of all registered architects were black women. So that's less than 1%, right? Less than half of a percent, 0.2%. When I got my license, it was 0.3%, right? Mm. So it hadn't gone up uh, in that like three mm. or four years. And, you know, now it might be 0.5%, maybe okay. even it's up to 1%. Um, who knows? It could be more than mm-hmm. that. But the the process itself uh, begins to narrow so that you it, and and become more exclusive, mm. so that the people who end up getting their license and end up getting their license in um, multiple states mm. are those who are predominantly white males, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, every architect I can think of, right, <laughs> right, but right, and it, it's not. It doesn't start off that way, right? So yeah. if you look at the architecture programs, the okay. architecture schools, who's in the schools, um, you know, you, you have a lot of women now. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of non-white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the diversity there. Mm-hmm. But as you go further and further along in the process, it narrows. <laughs> it narrows. And what's that about? Capacity? Like in life? Like money? Is it's this- about money. It's about um, the obstacles mm-hmm. that are in the way, um, you know, you, you might talk about social capital or mm-hmm. cultural capital, mm-hmm. right? Just the, the knowledge and the skills and internship placement, the internship placement, yeah. being able to get a job, right. being able to stick with a job that may not be paying you mm-hmm. well enough right. to support a whole family. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are these, these challenges. So, I mean, first you have to go to school, right? You have to go to college. So that's the first thing yeah. that, that elim- eliminates a lot of people from becoming architects. Uh, you have to go to school beyond four years if right. you want to be a licensed architect. So there's a five-year program or you can get a master's degree mm-hmm. like I did. Um, but that's beyond just four years of right. college, right? And, you know, for the most part, again, this might be different at some schools now, but as I mentioned, you're taking design every semester. So it's not like you can do an accelerated program. Mm-hmm. You know, I know a lot mm-hmm. of students uh, who, for economic reasons, will mm-hmm. take on really heavy course loads mm-hmm. so that they can finish college sooner, yeah. right? Yeah, In three years that. or so. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And it's such an admirable thing. I don't know anyone who could, who could actually do that. do that in architecture. You, there's right? probably no way. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, on top of the long hours that you're just putting in to do this. So, being able, being accepted to college, mm-hmm. <laughs> getting into the architecture program, completing the architecture program, finding a job, mm-hmm. which it depends on what the economy is like mm-hmm. when you come out of school, right? right? Architecture is very volatile with the economy. Mm-hmm. So finding a job, um, then staying employed <laughs> right through yeah. possible layoffs right. or mergers or what uh-huh. have you, um, Starting the paperwork to get your license mm-hmm. uh, can be a hassle, and there's a fee associated with that. Okay. 
um, tracking all your hours, getting a mentor. All of these yeah. are things that require a kind of expertise and perse- perseverance. Mm-hmm. Um, they're helped greatly if you have mentors who are in your corner yeah. and if you have people who know how to support mm. you. And so many, many people just don't have that yeah. and, and fall through the cracks as it goes along or decide this isn't right for me for and me. switch careers. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, when we talk about the participatory mm-hmm. design of, of going along with, and yeah. then you talk about socially responsible. Right. So what's the difference yeah, there? Yeah, let's get back to this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so participatory design is designing with your clients, uh-huh. right? So really understanding that they have a kind of knowledge and expertise that is more um, about who they are and what they they need to use the space for, yes. right? So the architects have the kind of... Um, uh, design vocabulary, so to speak. They understand how spaces work. Mm-hmm. They understand how building systems work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the the clients have an understanding of their community, mm-hmm. right? Or at mm-hmm. least of themselves right. and how they operate. Mm-hmm. And so participatory design is about working together. Mm-hmm. Socially de- responsible design um, often involves participatory design, mm-hmm. right? It's about working with your clients. But socially responsible design has uh, more of an aim to address specifically marginalized communities. So very often you have um, projects that are being designed and built. Um, Sometimes these are projects associated or programs associated with universities, with architecture programs, so Mm -hmm. that they have architecture students working with people in the community, like in rural communities. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking of a program in Auburn. Mm -hmm. where it's a a rural design Mm -hmm. studio, right? Um, And so you have people, particularly architects or architectural students, working with uh, people in marginalized communities to better uh, empower them, Mm -hmm. right? To make sure that they have a voice in design, uh, to make sure that they're getting the kinds of facilities that um, that they need and mm. that are safe and, yeah. and sound and beautiful, mm-hmm. right? But that uh, socially responsible design often has, um, in addition to this goal of empowering their mm. clients, a goal of addressing the uh, environment. So, yes. not so the the natural environment environment, like building in a green way, mm-hmm. but also um, the sort of political environment right. in, a, in a city and addressing the kinds of um, inequalities that might be in zoning mm-hmm. issues uh, right. or, or other kinds of um, ways that people get segregated in cities. Um, You know, I think back, this was nothing that we knew of when we first were given this building space. And it was literally a very industrial space. It had printing machines everywhere. um, And we had to think of how do we build out our space for uh, survivors of the commercial sex industry? Right. Like knowing that this would be a space where they could feel love and belonging. Like right. how do you make these intangible things very uh, experiential? Right. And um, so without knowing there was someone in our own community <laughs> who could have helped us at the time, we went about with interior designers and I did just a lot of research online of... Um, triggering colors. Uh, we, we gathered 30 women that we had together and just said, tell us what, 
what means the most to you when you walk into space. And they all said, we don't want to feel like we're walking into an agency. Right. We don't want to feel like we're going to another government agency because they felt that, well, what do you feel when you go there? Cold. Right. They don't care. We're just, we're not, we're another number. And so we thought, oh no, we're trying to build a sense of, of belonging and, and family, not a family of origin, but a sense of community. Right. So how do we do that? And so everything from colors to textures, we wanted it to be a, a feminine, a place where where females were represented, right, you right, know? Right. Um, and for so long, and our listeners have heard this story before, but for so long we were officing out of our home mm-hmm. and our guest house. And we had women who lived in the back guest house at transient times and, um, and their children. And, uh, and they all wanted a sense of home. Right. And so we thought, well, how do we make this mid-century modern like block <laughs> of 4,400 square feet feel like home? Right. Like, are there different sections? Could we arrange the big room in such a way that it feels like a little sitting area and a dining room and a living room? And can our bathrooms feel like a bathroom you might having a home, you right. know? And so that was super important to us as far as even triggering psychological... We called on different psychologists to right. talk to us about colors. Right. And that's know? what I'm talking about, about participatory design, mm-hmm. right? You ask the people themselves who yeah. would be using the space, right? Mm-hmm. What is it you want to feel, mm-hmm. right? And they're the ones who are going to tell you, I, we want a place that doesn't feel like an agency. We want something that evokes a sense of home, right? Yeah. Um, your designers might be able to tell you that, but they don't have the lived experience to to say why why that matters. They're not the ones who are going to be served by this space. Yeah. You you want to talk to the people who are actually using the space and going to be served by it to say, what do you need? What do you value? Mm. What do you want this space to represent? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And and that becomes really um, I, I think that's a foundational part of design. I would argue that that's a key part of building justly, right? Mm-hmm. Is designing with the people that uh, you're designing for. Mm. And I, you know, it, it just makes me so sad mm. when that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I see instances of it, um, from home projects to, sure. um, university projects, right. Where people right. are not, um, talking to the, where the designers aren't given access to the people who are going to use the spaces mm. on a daily basis and saying, what matters to you, mm-hmm. right? Because it doesn't always, that, that type of process increases the time it takes to do design. It does. Right? Right. Um, which, which ultimately translates to money. money. But the decisions that the people are saying mm. or, or that they're communicating don't necessarily indicate more money, right? Mm. Um, so it's not that, you know, you're going to have this long wish list of things that right. you suddenly have to feel obligated to provide, um, you have to make decisions yeah. in, in any design project right. about it's what It's like, oh, get, this is the goes, fairy tale vision, right. but what can we actually right. accomplish? Exactly. That's going to come in any design sure. process. But to have the ideas from the people who are are most affected by the design mm. decisions is, is crucial. Yeah. Right? And I think that that's one of the key elements of what a kind of just architecture would mm. be. It's not just about the building, right, or the uh-huh. outcome or the space that you design. It's how you design it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the process is uh, exclusionary mm-hmm. and based in a kind of professional segregation, then your building might be as well. Right? I think this is so important because as I think about 
churches, nonprofits, community centers with the intent to do good work in their world, but not maybe with the commitment to actually listen to their constituency, if you will, on how to go about it, then your, your ROI is not going to be a good one. Right. Because they're not going to show up. Right. Right. They're not going to be involved in what you're building. Right. And so your process might take longer, right? But you end up with a better building. Yes. Right? Or, you know, a, a building that works, right? Yeah. Architects are all about like spaces yes. that work, right? Does yes. it do what it needs to do, right. right? And if it doesn't, what are you putting all that money into building mm. it and designing it for? You know, mm. if, if it doesn't meet the needs or, you know, at more of a soul level, meet the the desires and the hopes of the people who are mm-hmm. using it. We had a um, an intern one time who was studying, um, I think she was involved in social work, and she said, you know, what are you, what are you, what are you wanting, like the women to, like nuts and bolts, like what are you wanting? And I said, they they need to be able to, to sense love and belonging. And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all great and, and theoretical and everything, but like what do you really want them to, to walk away with? And I was like, a sense of love and belonging. Right. Right. I'm <laughs> going right. back to it. And it was like, I was speaking in a crazy dead language that right. no one spoke because I think we've been so focused on, and I, we've been so focused on outcomes and I think outcomes and measurables right. are important, but it's what kinds of outcomes right. and measurables are, right. how are you measuring that? Because I believe that you know, faith in action is love and love in action is service. Right. So to me, if I am serving in a way that's understood by our client, right. if I am serving in a way that's understand and understood even without being spoken, right. like there really are intangible things that people pick up on. Yeah. And that's going back to that exercise I did in architecture school that first semester, mm. right? That's what architects are taught and what right. we are... Uh, passionate about, yeah. right? I mean, architects, so many architects have such a heart for social justice yeah. issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's it's because it's part of who we are, right? Yeah. We're designing for communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some who, who want to design only the, the richest of the, the high-end luxury spaces. Yeah. But I think most architects out there want to feel that their work is making a difference, yeah. right? And and that means that it's impacting the communities that they're designing for. Yes. And so if you can use your creative artistic abilities to make a space say something mm-hmm. and feel a certain way, I mean, that's the thing that ar- architects and designers get excited about. Yeah. It's a challenge, it right? Is, and it's it's the harder road. Right. But it's such a, an enjoyable challenge. Yeah. And it's, it's why many of us go into this field, mm. right? We don't want to just be, you know, architects don't want to just be automatons or robots, mm. you know, designing out one space after another. There are many people who do that kind yeah. of work and they're just doing the same plan for a large corporation uh-huh. over and over again, adjusting it slightly this uh-huh. way or Bathroom's that way. here, right. there. You know, the CVS in Waco is going to look yes. like a CVS in right. Fayetteville. Right? Yes. It's, yes. you know, there, there's some minor changes you mm-hmm. have to adjust for site, but you know, for the most part, mm-hmm. it's going to look the same. Um, architects do that work and, and find purpose in it sure. and meaning in it. But the more exciting work mm-hmm. <laughs> is to say, you know, who is this specific mm-hmm. community and mm-hmm. how can I 
tailor this building to their needs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to change the language or, or the what we typically think of design as, mm. that it's not just this sort of scientific process of putting square footage with function, yeah. but it's about evoking the bigger picture of mm. things. So I talk about these moral commitments in design mm. and one of the, one of the first is creativity, which mm. seems like such an obvious yeah, thing, that. right? That architects uh, and designers and anyone who's trying to design their own space should tap into this idea of creativity. To me, it's a moral commitment that is it's something we do to make the world better or to make the world more just. When we tap into creativity as the idea of casting a vision mm, and, and following it, mm-hmm. right? So this idea of, um, of action, right? Mm-hmm. You, you talked about action, right? right? Of actually saying, what is it I want to see, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It, what is it I want this space to be? Mm-hmm. What do I want it to feel like? Of course, I want it to function. But what, what's the bigger picture mm-hmm. beyond that? Tapping mm-hmm. into that mm-hmm. and, and keeping that central, even yeah. when you're making tough decisions about yeah. budget and mm-hmm. space limitations, right? Mm-hmm. It's keeping that, that vision of, of what relationships matter, mm-hmm. what power relations are in yeah. the building, how, um, how beauty is, is represented, mm-hmm. all of those things. I mean, you talked about um, these agencies not really having a kind of feminine feel mm-hmm. to them or, or mm-hmm. even images of mm-hmm. women in right. there, right? That, that says something, right? That does say something. And so if you're trying to design a space for women, you want to have women featured in that in yeah. some kind of way. So yeah. it's an obvious thing, but I think you have to start with this idea of creativity as casting a vision mm. and a vision as to what is good, mm-hmm. not just what is good stylistically. Yeah. Right? Or, or what we're seeing on Pinterest. Right. Or Pinterest, I think which I love. The, but, <laughs> I think but where it's the, what's good for who, who we are. And the rub comes in where the people in power of the agency like a certain thing, may yeah. feel comfortable in one setting, but the people that they're working with might feel right. something completely different. Right. And so then you really have to suspend your desires, your right. judgment. It becomes a selfless act of of service. Right. So for me, the the first value I talk about is creativity. Mm-hmm. The second is empathy. Yeah, that's right? good. So it's about loving uh, in, in the Christian context, loving our neighbors, yeah. right? Loving other people enough to be willing to try to understand them mm-hmm. and listen to them and design for them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, design for them, again, with them, right? Yeah. But designing with the intention of knowing that ultimately this isn't my space yeah. as a designer, right? right? It's a reflection of me and my yeah. my design aesthetic and all that. Yeah. But it's not for me. Yeah. It's for this community or this mm-hmm. person. And so I need to be empathic or empathetic yes. in, in design, designing for these people, with these people, mm-hmm. keeping them the priority. Yes. I love that. And, and I, I will say that's, that's hard for me. Yeah. It's very hard for me because I like a certain order and I like right. a certain way. Right. And when they bring blankets that don't match anything right. or they're like, this is our comfort room. And I'm like, this is terrible. Right. This painting is right. horrible. And they love it. Right. It's where they feel nurtured and comfortable when right. they need to ground a little bit. It's like, um, but allowing that kind of freedom is so important for all of us to suspend our way 
for the greater community, you right. know, to feel um, seen and right. and valued and, and heard. So I, I think that's so important. You're working on a book called Building Justice, Theological Commitments, right? Uh-huh. In Architectural Design. Design. I got yes. it right. Okay. Um, I abbreviated on my notes. So theological commitments in architectural design, that's huge. So yeah. tell us about what this book is, what you're working on. I mean, you've talked a lot about these concepts, um, but yeah, when when will it be released mm-hmm. and what's it all about? So it'll be released after I finish writing it. Yeah, in process. <laughs> um, which um, I, I intend to finish writing it this summer. Um, I would have finished it last year, but had some personal uh, mm-hmm. struggles um, in my own life and, you know, life happens. Uh-huh. And so the book is is forthcoming. It's been forthcoming for a while. Mm-hmm. I have a publisher. It'll be um, published with Lexington Books, okay. I imagine, um, which makes books that are, are kind of affordable, mm-hmm. right? So a lot That's of great. academic books tend to be very highly priced, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, this one should be um, more accessible. Um so it should be out at the end of this year, uh, 2020, mm-hmm. or uh, in 2021 okay. at the latest, um, I imagine. I just love the title, Building Justice. Yeah. I mean, it, for me, it's about understanding that our commitments to justice and love and um, empowerment, that these have tangible, literal counterparts in our buildings, right? That That's you good. can actually design for these things. Um, my book is more about the design process mm. than about the actual objects mm-hmm. or the the buildings that mm-hmm. end up being designed, and that's that's intentional. I think design, uh, as we've talked about it, is is always going to be done with the people in your local community. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I can tell you what your building should look like, yeah. you know, in a book for all Christians mm-hmm. everywhere. Right? That's good. Um, but I think I can point you to key ideas that will guide how you create and Mm. and how you figure out what the building should be. So the first um, theological commitment um, is is creativity, Mm. uh, which Mm -hmm. I mentioned. And these are theological commitments or moral commitments. Mm -hmm. That is their commitments. They're ways of saying, I'm doing this design process with attention to how it, it serves other people Mm -hmm. and promotes right relationships, Mm -hmm. which is the justice piece. Mm -hmm. But it's also about honoring God Mm -hmm. and the the way God has designed our world Mm -hmm. and our place in Mm -hmm. it. So creativity is about um, understanding that God wants flourishing. I love that. Right? That God wants our flourishing, that God wants the flourishing of all creation, that God loves us and wants us to... um, to, to use our gifts, yeah, right? right? And, and to, to model justice and, and live in right relationship with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. And so the first moral commitment creativity is about casting a vision mm-hmm. that includes this sense of purpose and design, a purpose of design and justice and what, who we are as a community and what mm-hmm. we're trying to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second moral commitment I talk about is empathy, mm-hmm. which we just talked about, which is the way in design we communicate love for our mm-hmm. neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. That we listen to each other. We take the time to understand each other, that we don't always agree, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there's no design process I've seen or any kind of community process I've seen where everybody just agrees, yeah. right? 
but it's about coming to understand what others' needs are mm-hmm. so that when you have these trade-offs um, in design where you don't necessarily get what you want, uh-huh. you understand why that's being done for someone else. And I think you right? can go back to, if you follow your theological commitment, you can go back to the vision. You can right. go back to exactly. creativity. Right. So if something breaks down in how we're getting this, this yep. done, we can go back and kind yeah. of go, oh, but is this for right. this purpose? Right. Whatever that purpose right. is. And that's why for me, creativity is the first one, casting yeah. the vision. Without uh-huh. that vision, uh, there's a proverb, right? Without a vision, the people, people perish, perish, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the idea that you have to go back to this vision yeah. always. And so empathy is about fleshing that vision out uh-huh. with real love for others, that's right? So what do our relationships look like? How does that get put into the building? The third uh, moral commitment is discernment, Mm. which is about making wise decisions. Um, So this is where you acknowledge that uh, empathy, you know, is going to take you so far, but you're going to have these conflicts and there are always conflicts in design, budget, space, time, environment, zoning, there's (laughs) trade-offs, right? There are no decision. I, so I teach Christian ethics, yeah. right? We, we talk about this a lot in ethics. There's no decision that is completely right, at least mm. not in our complex world. Right? Darn it. I don't like that, right. at least. <laughs> and design is complex, right? So yeah. it's always about assessing the trade-offs and, yeah. and the harms. From a Christian perspective, uh, I think about discernment as in terms of being guided by the Spirit or mm-hmm. guided by God. Mm. So it's relying on decision making that's just not your own, that's good. but turning towards God or theological resources or prayer even in yeah. the process of design, mm. uh, trusting that you're making wise decisions for a greater purpose. Mm. Um, and and accepting your own limitations mm. and the limitations that you have, right? So that's the third one. The fourth one is beauty, mm. um, which is about um, delight, right? Oh, so love this. You know, these are so good. These are like good values just for <laughs> they anything. Are, they are. I these mean, are very so transcendent for, values. They're for design. I talk about in this book, but I find myself using this in all sorts Personal of areas. Life. Right. These are great. Right. Yeah. So. Oh, I love Beauty the is about delighting our souls, mm. right? That, you know, we can have spaces that work and function, I mean, is so important. Yeah. Right? But if it doesn't resonate with us, mm. if it doesn't delight us, then it's not flourishing, yeah. right? It's subsistence, it's survival. Those are really mm. important, you know, in the work mm. you do, right? Survival is key. But if we're just surviving and we're not thriving, yeah right? Then, then we're not having the full life that God wants for us. And I think beauty is such a key part of what makes life meaningful and joyful. And so delight is, is in architectural terms that we talk about beauty, right? Mm. Which isn't just, you know, is it pretty, but does this speak to my sense of, again, going back to the vision, does Mm. it relate to that vision? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and beauty, I think this is where people always sort of trip me up. Right. And say things like, well, you know, you eventually have to like, just make decisions Mm. to, to keep in budget. Right. Mm -hmm. Like beauty is always so much more expensive. Right. And it's not, it's about finding ways to make the most of what you have yeah. with the resources that you have. I think of um, a good analogy to this. We follow and are, are friends with um, 
the founder of Noonday Collection, Jessica Honiger, mm-hmm. who globally sources fair trade. She's a B Corp and um, travels all over the world. And, and it's, it's a beautiful, flourishing company of, of beautiful uh, artisans all over the globe. And what I think is so um, just incredible is to watch so many communities and women who didn't have jobs in third world countries or in Uganda, for yeah. instance, or you know, where their countries were war-torn, but they're creating from what they have. Right. These amazing, delightful, beautiful, they just spark joy. And to be able to partake of that and by buying a piece of jewelry and then investing in that community of artisans is so transcendent. I mean, you're getting to wear this beautiful piece of jewelry, but it brought this artisan so much joy and delight to partake of it, you know? I I, th- I think that's the key element of of beauty is this sense of delight, right? Yeah. And then I mean I have to say here, so often what we think of as beautiful is um, given to us or um, suggested to us by advertising mm, uh, people right. who are very much trying to sell us something, yeah. right? I mean yeah. I I watch design shows on TV sure. a lot. Um, but there's a sense in which there's a certain agenda being pushed very yeah. often towards new appliances, uh-huh. towards new materials, That's, right? Yeah. I mean, aside from like reclaimed wood tables and sure. mantel places, which you sure. can buy for sure. a nice penny somewhere, right? But there's a sense of um, this kind of uh, materialism that, oh, that's underlying sure. that uh, and the sense of like um, cons- it's a consumer-driven yes. aesthetic, right? And I want people to understand that beauty, as I'm talking about it, doesn't mean the latest style, mm. right? So a good kitchen doesn't necessarily have to be a modern farmhouse kitchen, totally, right? Totally, it, it can be a good kitchen if you like the stuff that's in it and Absolutely. it works for you, right? And just as we know this with like beauty standards for women, right? Mm-hmm. There, there can be a certain ideal that's put mm-hmm. out there that you may not look like, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is where my black feminism is yes. coming into, right? That just because the ideal is put out there doesn't mean that it works for you totally. and doesn't mean that it is for you. Yet everybody deserves spaces that they delight yes. in. That if we are deprived of delight and beauty, I think that does something to our souls. Yes. Right. And and so to me, beauty as a moral commitment mm. is about saying that everybody deserves beauty mm. and, and joy. Yeah. No matter what their budget is, mm-hmm. right? Poor yeah. people deserve beautiful yeah. spaces too. Right. 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 And it is where that representation has to be present. Yes. Because if you don't see yourself as beautiful because you've been told by a world that you are not beautiful and you walk into a space and nothing about that space represents beauty or yourself back to you. Where do you, I mean, how are you supposed to feel beautiful? How are you supposed to delight in who God made you to be? We, um, in our access class that's happening right now, this eight week, uh, course, um, we have three students, only three students, four applied, only three ended up uh, making it into the course. And they are two uh, white women and one middle aged, she's older than I am, African American woman. And I addressed right off the top I understand we're a white staff right now. Yeah. And you were the only black student in our class. And um, she had an issue with an employer that that came up or her placement that we really wanted her to be placed with a black business owner, a black female business owner. And it fell through. 
And I was devastated because I just thought she's not getting that representation here. She's not getting it at her job site. And so what can we do? So we had, um, we have banners that we use of many women who've been through our program. And so I told the staff, I was like, go get Shamika's banner from Waffle Chick and you bring her banner over here. So at least when she walks in the building, she sees herself. Right. You know, that's so important. We have to do that. Yeah. Because yeah. And to not acknowledge it again, is just, is just part of that blindness. Right. And I mean, this goes back to the, the issue of like the architecture field being narrowed, right? Having representation of diverse peoples isn't just about the numbers, right? Mm. It's not just about, well, you know, society looks like this, you know, demographically looks like this. So our organization has to match up with that. But it's about finding ways to celebrate the differences of people and the different kinds of experiences they bring to their work, their, their job, their play, their leisure, their artistic creation, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's about getting diverse viewpoints and life experiences and Mm -hmm. backgrounds and ways of seeing the world. Yeah. And we have to have spaces that reflect that as well. So, I mean, you were talking about the, uh, the noonday, Mm -hmm. uh, products and, and the, you can do that with your furniture. You can do that with, you know, again, most of us aren't like designing buildings from scratch, right? But we might be redesigning our bedroom, right? Uh, Figuring out the types of artwork that we put in there, what it represents. You know, you don't just have to put a a landscape or put, you know, landscape painting or a, um, you know, whatever is the latest thing you saw in a design show, right? You want to figure out what it is that you're, that you celebrate yes, and and who you represent and and find ways to celebrate that. Yeah. There's something to be said for even in religious um, and spiritual development for artifacts and something that's very important about whether it's a place you visited or something meaningful in an antique or family or historical or a museum that you visited, a village that you went to, to have that kind of representation is, um, yeah, to, to spark delight and beauty. Right. So after, and then the fifth one, yeah. yeah. So the fifth one is sustainability, which is about caring for God's creation and understanding, understanding that we're part of God's creation as well. Yeah. Right. As, as human beings. Right. So the world, isn't just for our delight Mm. it's for the delight of all creatures Mm. and and even the non-living creatures right the things that god created so preserving ecosystems Mm -hmm. making sure there's a world for the next generations to inherit Mm -hmm. um again a flourishing thriving Mm. just world for them to Mm. inherit Um, that can continue birthing yes yes. it has to continue birthing so sustainability is a term um architects tend to use um it's not the only term sure. we use, but it's it's this idea about providing for the future, yeah. right? And making sure that there are enough resources to, to continue on. Yeah. Um, but here, I would say it's not just concern about those future generations, but about our health and safety mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So choosing materials that are non-toxic mm-hmm. in buildings, I'm becoming much more aware mm-hmm. of, of how most of us haven't been trained in this. Sure. Right to uh, you know we're we're very conscious about the products we might put on our bodies now, yeah, right? Like yeah. the soaps we use and For all sure. that. Um, but you know we don't know what's in the 
the paint, paint, the varnish, <laughs> right? The, the yeah, the, the fabrics, right? Yeah, the the, the wood, yes. right? What what are the things that the plastics, right? What yes. are the things that we're coming in t- contact with, or that are being put into the air that yeah. we're inhaling? Yeah, right. So I, I think concern about materials, about uh, environmental um, preservation, yeah. right? So not destroying our environment for right. the latest, you know, shiny thing, right. <laughs> right? Um, that all of these are, are important as well. So yeah. sustainability is about protecting future generations, but understanding that our place as humans in the world is not, um, is not as Kings of everything, right? yeah. but is, is part of an interconnected chain mm, of being that God good. has designed. That's so good. Elise, it's been just a delight to talk with you. Where can people, if they kind of want to follow you, are you public on Instagram? I'm not. Or, okay. I, hopefully I will be okay. in the next few you months. you got a book coming out, I know, so you're going to so have to. <laughs> I'm thinking summer 2020, I'll start building my Instagram um, profiles. Um, right now, you can follow me as I'm a regular contributor to a blog called feminismandreligion.com. Okay. Uh, so you can, you can find out about me there. You can Google me and, and, you know, if you're an academic, I'm on academia.edu. Um, but hopefully over the next few months, I'll develop more of a public presence on social media. Well, if you want to get, um, in touch with Dr. Edwards, you can certainly email us and get in touch with us. If you've got burning hot questions about Christian ethics and architecture. And I have tons of opinions. I'm always happy to share ideas and, you know, I'm, I'm overworked like every woman I know and overextended, but, uh, I, so I may not always reply as soon as, you know, I hear from you, but, um, very often I hear from people and I'm just thinking things over. And yeah. so I, I love to share my ideas and, and work with people and help them in any way. So, Well, you are a very busy woman in our very own community. Waco is, is very, very fortunate to have you and to have your lens and your input and wisdom in the world to kind of help us even as we're growing and as we're developing organizations and and different communities um, within our own community. It's an exciting time to be here. It is. It is an exciting time. Um, So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you again for inviting me. You're welcome. Hey, thanks for joining the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to awaken hope and empower change with us. We want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review because your voice matters. It's how we get this message into the world. And lastly, be sure to follow Jesus Said Love on Instagram and Facebook for up-to-date info. And visit the website at JesusSaidLove.com for how you can join the JSL fam. Until next time. Share the love.